So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than... We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm Robinson Meyer. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and this year I'm a journalism fellow at the Energy Policy Institute. My guest this week is Michael Catanzaro. He is the president of the CGCN Group, which is a consulting firm here in Washington that works on energy and environment issues. He's also a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And from 2017 to 2018, he worked in the Trump White House, where he was a special assistant to the president uh, on the National Economic Council, where he worked on those same issues. This week, we talked about a lot of things, including the Biden campaign, the Trump campaign, and how they may deal with climate and energy issues. We talked about what's happening on, in Congress, and we tried to look into the crystal ball in the future and figure out what will happen on transportation policy and just the U.S. transportation market overall. So we're recording this uh, the same week. It's a little hard to believe because it's been so news intense <laughs> as Super Tuesday and yes. uh, Biden surging to the front of the pack um, of the Democratic of the Democratic primary. And, and seemingly like it, it seems like a very good chance that if this podcast comes out in the next week or two, he will have sewed it up by then. And so I wanted to ask just what in the 2020 election as we look forward, like, what should we be thinking about? Um, and, and what would you start to expect from a kind of first-term Biden energy, climate, environment policy? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do think we will see Joe Biden probably wrap this up. I'm not sure how much Bernie Sanders can continue, but he, he probably will continue to make it somewhat interesting for the next few weeks. But yeah, I think the expectation is we will have a, a Joe Biden candidacy. He'll be the nominee. And so the question would be, you know, how different would an energy environmental policy agenda be in a Biden administration as opposed to a Sanders administration? Uh, I'm one who believes it wouldn't be greatly different, um, maybe just in terms of how quickly uh, a President Biden would move on things like climate change. I, I would think that he'd be a little bit less aggressive uh, in polling certain policy levers that, say, a President Sanders would pull. I, I think, for example, President Sanders, maybe on day one, would declare a climate emergency, yeah. and he has the ability to do that as president, both under the Constitution and various statutes. And a lot of things would flow from that. One, And being, it seems like also because of how President Trump has used national emergencies during his tenure, there'd be more ability for a president to advance their policy agenda kind of under those statutes. I think that's correct. Before. And yeah, I think that the courts, generally speaking, would be somewhat loath to kind of second guess a president who'd be making those types of 
emergency declaration. Now, albeit, I think a climate emergency would be a pretty novel thing. I'm not sure exactly what the courts would do with that. But uh, I think if Sanders were even for Biden decided to do it, that there would be a considerable amount of, of evidence, scientific data and other things to sort of back up what they're saying. So I think with, with President Biden, then I, I don't think he would do that necessarily right off the bat. Um, I, I don't think he would try to, say, shut down oil exports, yeah. maybe not right away. Maybe that's something that the pressure and momentum builds up over time. But I think the one issue that uh, candidate Biden's going to have to deal with is, is this fracking ban, which <laughs> I think he has embraced. And, uh, you know, we've discussed before the extent to which a president can impose a fracking ban. You'd have to get an act of Congress to do that. But there are things that an administration can do to slow down fracking on federal lands. There could be some sort of moratorium imposed for a few years uh, to stop new leasing from going forward and other mechanisms to, you know, complicate existing leases and production on federal lands there. So and so that I think is going to be a question in key states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and in the Rust Belt. There's a lot of labor unions and labor union members in those states, and they're going to be asking Biden that question. Hey, you know, if I'm going to be with you. You got to make sure I'm going to have my job if you're president. So, do you think that at this point the idea of a fracking ban is so out there? Because I think Biden hasn't endorsed it to the same degree that Sanders has. He did. I think in a debate he basically said, "Sure." I think it was it was sort of uh, almost off the cuff. Yeah, yeah, what the heck? Let's just ban it. So I'm not sure he completely meant what he said. Uh, so he may walk that back a bit. Yeah, that would be my guess. And uh, but I I would guess too that uh, President Trump's campaign is going to try to use the fracking ban against him. And so uh, be interesting to see how much um, you know candidate Biden sort of backs off some of these positions a little bit as he's going into the Rust Belt and trying to get back some of those blue collar Democrats who did vote for uh, for President Trump. Uh, it, it's funny. It seems like on this issue. Uh, a potential, you know, candidate Biden, President Biden, ha- would have the same, w- would have, to some degree, an advantage that President Trump has also ha- had, which is that there, he's not always been coherent in expressing his policy uh, views, and this can lead to people kind of believing things he says, but also saying, oh, well, maybe, maybe he didn't actually believe that. Or yes. It's hard to understand what he actually meant in, in the moment. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yes, uh, <laughs> there could be a a muddle and a kind of a lack of clarity that uh, a candidate Biden could exploit and say, well, yeah, I said that maybe it was the heat of the moment. Or, That's not really what I meant. Here's what I really mean. We got to get a handle on fracking, make sure it's safe. I believe we can do that. We have the technology, the know-how to do it. So there are various things he can say to bob and weave and kind of yeah. navigate that issue politically, I think. I think he's going to be able to do that. And we'll, we'll see. It's, again, it's, that's going to be the voting block that I think is going to matter uh, at the end of the day, in deciding who is the next president of the United States, um, just to continue on the on the Biden Sanders stuff, I mean, do you think how likely do you think it is that if there is a president Biden, um, we would see an attempt to move climate policy through Congress? I realize that depends a lot on what his down ballot down ballot effect would be, and it depends on who controls the Senate, but. Let's say it's a very close Senate. Uh, let's follow the polls and say that it's a very narrow Senate mm-hmm. Democrat uh, with with Democrats in the majority, and the House has a slightly smaller majority than it does now. Do you think there would be an attempt to move climate policy through Congress, including possibly like in a in a bipartisan way, or would it be? It's just going to be a focus on health care and other domestic issues and and and. 
it'll be like second term Obama again. It's all executive. That is a really interesting question and, and one that I'm uh, thinking a lot about uh, and how all this will sort of play out if you do have a, a Democrat in the White House. I, I think that fairly early on, um, you will see an attempt to work with the Congress to try to get legislation passed. You're seeing it now. And the Democrats in the House Energy and Commerce Committee have introduced what's called the Clean Future Act. Um, it's kind of their attempt to put together a comprehensive economy-wide climate bill. There could be other things added to it as it goes through the process. But I don't envision that this year that that would come to a vote in the House. Mm-hmm. I think what they're doing is trying to lay the groundwork, have hearings, get buy-in, put out discussion drafts, get input from stakeholders, to have a product ready to go so that in the event you have a President Biden, they can move fairly quickly. I agree with kind of your assessment, or at least what the polls are saying. You will have a House Democrat majority, maybe slightly less of a majority, and then the Senate could go either way, but it's going to be very tight. The big question, or an A big question, will be, I think there'll be a lot of energy from the left to put pressure on Schumer, if he's in the position to do it, to get rid of the filibuster. Because, yeah. And let's just say if that happens, I'm not sure that it will. I think there are a lot of Democratic senators uh, who are a little bit loath to, to kind of take that very precipitous step. It would be a very big deal to do it. But if they did, did do it, I'm not sure that you know there's 51 votes uh, guaranteed uh, yeah. to, to pass an economy-wide climate bill. I just, just don't think the Republicans are going to be there. They're talking more about climate change, and you're seeing some House Republicans embracing innovation and technology and R&D and those sorts of things. But the idea that they would embrace mandates or a cap-and-trade program or a carbon tax or other things along that those lines, they're not going to do it, is my view. And then there will be a few moderates, I think, on the Democratic side, Kristen Sinema, you know, Joe Manchin, and others who are going to be uh, up for grabs. Yeah. And so it's going to be a very difficult situation. And so if climate legislation fails, then you will see the tried and true, let's do it via regulation, which is not a great way to uh, go about trying to reduce emissions. It's very clunky, complicated, time-consuming, uh, litigation-ridden, and um, you know, the Supreme Court has already declared kind of its view, kind of indirectly, I suppose, when it stayed the, the clean power plant, it's very suspicious of trying to sort of put a, you know, I guess as Scalia put it, sort of an elephant in a mouse hole. You're trying to, you know, get these big policies and, and climate, you know, it's a big deal. It's a big issue and you got to deal with it in a comprehensive way. I'm not sure the Clean Air Act was intended to do, maybe we can get into discussion about the legality of that. But yeah, say, you, let's say that the Clean Air Act was the Congress intended it to deal with climate change. I just don't think the provi- existing provisions that are there are going to be up to the task. And yeah. uh, you, know, you can try to do performance standards and other things. That's one way of doing it. But that, again, is a very long and complicated process. You could do maybe an ambient air quality standard under the NACs, declare CO2, um, you know, a pollutant under that regime, but that is very difficult where you have to go through state implementation plans and takes you years to get into it, you know, whatever attainment would be. So Right. And this is this is also this that that feels like that will happen uh if a you know, large piece of granite with a D next to its name had the White House mm-hmm. kind of next. Right. Then the EPA machinery will, will proceed along all those lines, I think. Yes. Kind of no matter I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. Um uh, not to not to reject it, just like that. That seems like the, the EPA moving forward with clean air based climate legislation see, or climate regulation rather seems like the they'll move on parallel. The tracks. base case, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. I want to get to the stuff that's happening in the in Congress in a second, but we should say it is it's not uh, only Sanders and Biden in the electorate. So, what would a second term Trump energy policy look like 
And what would the climate yeah. <laughs> downstream effects um, of that be? Yeah, I, I think that a second term Trump administration would look very much like the first. I think there is yeah. a strong desire to continue moving in a deregulatory agenda. I don't envision that you would have anything like a, you know, a Trump climate policy per se. Yeah, there was some idea or some discussion of that kind of early on, like what could a climate policy look like if, if you're in the Trump administration? Does that mean, you know, we're exporting LNG abroad, so you're backing out coal in Asian countries? Does that reduce emissions? Yes, you could argue. Some would argue with that, uh, take issue with that. But are those the types of things that you could lump all together and call a climate policy? I don't know if they would do that. But again, I think a second term would look very much like the first. I don't think you would see any kind of concerted engagement at the international level unless there was a desire or a willingness or an ability to demonstrate that the likes of China and India actually would take on significant emission reduction commitments. I mean, and do you think there's a there's a let's I want to back up for a second yep. and say, can you see this administration ever advancing something that it would call a climate policy? Well, you know, there's been the interesting piece of this is there's this discussion going on, it's not necessarily inside the administration, but more outside of it, where people are talking about combining Trump's predilection for tariffs with climate policy. Yeah. So you could have, maybe the Europeans force us into this, where they put sort of a tariff on us, um, or sort of a border adjustment tax, if you want to call it their tariff, yeah. um, that maybe we have to respond in kind, but maybe there's a thought that this is another lever that the president can pull in sort of this trade conflict with China. Um, if we get there, if things aren't going well, that maybe if we decide we do want China to start making real reductions in emissions, that uh, you could do sort of a border, border adjustment tariff and call whatever you want. But that could be way one way of sort of addressing the issue on a more comprehensive sort of global scale. So that's that's an idea that I wonder if that will gain sway inside the administration. But that's a very interesting approach. It, it seems like there's this discussion that bubbles up from time to time. In some ways, the most recent iteration was before the State of the Union, where the president announced the support for the Trillion Trees initiative, I think, um, that Trump will, especially in advance of the election, um, make moves toward moderating on climate. So go, moving away from the kind of early campaign message um, that climate policy is bad for jobs and bad for the economy and moving toward a, oh, well, actually, the economy is doing great. And I've done X, Y, and Z. I've planted trees and I've imposed this quarter uh, border adjustment and right. I've invested in carbon capture. And that's climate policy. Sure. Hey, suburban women, listen. <laughs> right. I promise it's climate policy. Yeah, that's right. Um, like, do you think that's ever going to happen? Because I feel like that's been promised from time to time and and... I think you're seeing that actually right now playing okay. out with House Republicans. I think that's precisely why you're seeing, um, you know, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, along with other Republicans, embracing um, a climate policy that does exactly what you're talking about: technology, innovation, CCS. Uh, we'll see here in the next few weeks. I think they're thinking about you know more robust natural gas agenda, promoting that as a way to reduce emissions. Uh, R&D, the Department of Energy, you know, the Trillion Trees Initiative, as you, you mentioned. I don't think President Trump is going to jump on that. I think he and his political team think that they have this massive gift sitting in front of them called the Green New Deal. And mm -hmm. you've heard the president signal this 
at his rallies where he says, well, I'm not going to talk about the Green Deal, Green New Deal yet because I don't want to spoil the fun. Let's wait until we get further down the road here when people are really paying attention. I think he's going to spend all of his time both on the Green New Deal and trying to you know, tag that to Joe Biden and see yeah. whether he's successful or not. Because I don't think Biden has, you know, actually embraced the new Green New Deal, but the president will try to force him into that corner. And then the, and the fracking ban. So I think that the, the president's team views climate policy the other way. Right. The climate policies that the other side is supporting make energy more expensive for consumers. And I think their team thinks that's a winner if we point that out. I mean, I think there's always been this subterranean theory of the 2016 election, which is that since it really does, and I have never been able to tell how much this has shared among how much the administration, folks in the administration, folks in the campaign believe this and how much they think it's politically expedient to believe this. And first of all, the election really does come down to 100,000 people in three rest yep. states. Um, and second, that for all the talk about uh, the policy content of the 2016 campaign and and obviously i think uh race and immigration played a huge role there there was also i think the president communicated a fairly uh robust jobs message through Mm -hmm. that campaign and i think um if you look at what the obama administration was busy doing during 2016 2015 most of the serious policy news which i which we can talk about whether it was covered how it was covered whatever Mm -hmm. was on climate Yep. And at the same time, there was the beginning of this massive retrenchment among coal miners and, and among uh, coal producing, you know, coal industries and coal linked industries. And just there was this mini recession in manufacturing anyway. It's always seemed like there is a real possibility that uh, climate policy in those three states actually really did drive um, historically Democratic voters to vote, to switch to Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we're going to test it out again. I mean, I, right. <laughs> we'll I, see I've again. never been able to tell how much yeah. that's like me as an environmental reporter, an energy reporter, like trying to find my angle on the on the no, big I, political event. But yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to it. And, you know, I, I going way back, uh, I worked on the uh, Bush Cheney reelect as the deputy policy director. I was doing energy environment issues there. And we we saw in polling that you know, a state like West Virginia, a uh, historically Democratic state, but the, the issue of climate change was very much uh, prominent in that campaign as well. And John Kerry, of course, had embraced the McCain-Lieberman bill, cap-and-trade bill, and it became a big issue in West Virginia. And President Bush took the state, and there was kind of no turning back from there. I think you're right. 2016, I do think climate change is an issue in terms of putting people's jobs at risk. That message, in yeah. a way, resonated in those key Rust Belt States with those voters. I think that's going to be the same, as I said before, this time around, again, in a few key states. It's going to come down to Pennsylvania and Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and a few others. And that, um, that's and so if you look at the polling um, historically, I mean, climate change relative to other issues, I think with all voters, really doesn't poll that high. Mm-hmm. If you're going to the voting booth and you're polling levers, you're not doing it on climate change. You're doing it on jobs and the economy and health care and terrorism and education and a lot of other issues. But people do pull the lever if they feel like they're going to be paying more for energy, whether that's gasoline at the pump or electricity. That I think the data show that pretty clearly. So I, I do think that energy, President Trump in this election could have the leg up. I think 
um, Biden is going to have to defend himself on this, and he's going to have to sort of separate himself, as I said before, kind of from the Green New Deal and some of those Rust Belt states where, you know, the, the union voter, uh, you know, the member of LIUNA, the building trades, the yeah. Teamsters, the IBEW is going to be suspicious. Now, I think Biden is the best candidate for the Democrats because he can talk the lingo. He can talk to those folks. He can identify with them and say, look, you can trust me. You know me. I'm not yeah. going to do this to you. So we'll see. I, I mean, I've wondered, actually, if Biden is the the best hope for kind of Democrats who want substantive climate policy in that he is the only one who can right. really get it, really do stuff uh, while still winning that exact kind of working class right. cohort that has historically been turned off. Yeah, and I, th- that's, I think it's a great point. And I think he, as president, could enlist um, the industrial labor unions to bring them in, have, you know, the big the big meetings in the Roosevelt Room in the White House with union leaders and talk about different approaches to climate and talk about CCS and keeping fossil fuels as part of the mix. They then can go up to the Hill and carry yeah. uh, President Obama, uh, Biden's message and policies and, and try to build support that way. So I agree with you. I think he's, he's if it's, if it's if we're a President Sanders, I just don't, I think those unions would just say, forget it, we're not going to waste our time. It always seems like one of the dynamics here, and it, curious how you think about this from a campaign standpoint, is, and to some degree, I think this is what p- part of the my what I've always wondered about 2016 is that when Democrats announce climate policy or environmental policy at the executive level, especially in governance, that is taken by Washington, and to some degree by the kind of nonpartisan or partisan skeptical press corps. And I'd even say by like Republican, by by lots of professional D.C. Republicans mm-hmm. who, to a certain degree, like would like to see climate more climate policy happen mm-hmm. as environmental policy. It is taken as a generally good thing, not a huge deal. It is politicized by some politicians, obviously, but there is not a people understand it in the register of environmental issues. Right. But it is understood by voters in the register of the economy and jobs. And right. that's how it leaks out. And so there's this aspect to how those news stories are covered and how they're understood versus how they're how they play that kind of never quite translates except in some stories or you'll have you'll see like a union leader in a state be like, you know, this these policies really hurt us. Right. You know, down at the three quarter mark of a story and yep. no one really makes a big deal out of it. Uh I mean, is that like how would you think about this when you were working on the Bush reelect campaign or when you're when you've seen the, this White House work? Do they think about exploiting that through costs? Do they think about like jobs? Yeah, that that's been the, uh, you know, the tr- sort of traditional Republican playbook on things like Waxman Markey or McCain Lieberman and the sort of the various iterations of cap and trade legislation over the years or a carbon tax. It's, you know, it's, I think it's undoubtedly the case that is going to make. Uh, sort of conventional energy fossil fuels more expensive. That's the point, I think, largely of the policies to help induce consumers to go somewhere else and you're increasing demand for other types of fuels, other sources of energy. That is the point. And I think that's Republicans typically say, well, wait a minute. Why are we re- why are we raising the cost of energy? What are we getting out of this? Why are we doing this? And that just that's where they have been and where they will continue to go. And those would be the questions that they continue to ask and the prism through which they view climate policy. I agree with you. I think it's an astute observation that you know, it's interesting I, I, that you raise that because I think that you know Kevin McCarthy in the House is trying to look at it more from an environmental standpoint because he wants to sell. He's got a certain cohort of members yeah. in these suburban districts 
and they want to be able to sell an environmental message. Well, and at the same about time, climate, you know, like, so it's, it's hi- interesting. And yeah. historically, climate hasn't been a high salience issue, right. but now the, it's it's so. What the polls say is that it is a higher salience issue than it's ever been before. Now the polls only go back like eight years. When viewed in isolation, when viewed in isolation, I mean, you. Could, I think like there's a Pew poll that just came out where some voters are ranking it as high as healthcare, and it does seem like the electorate overall has switched in a move driven mostly by Democrats to be more worried about climate change. Um, but that is like kind of everyone moves one pocket over. Right. So so concerned Democrats are now extremely anxious Democrats, but uh, in- intrigued moderates are now s- sort of concerned, you know, right. moderates. Um, uh, it-, it seems like there is this awareness among some House Republicans that this is in the suburbs specifically in our suburban country like that this is they need some message about climate and it they it's not just that it's going to increase energy costs and kill jobs yeah that's right i i think it's there a number of republicans are tired of being beaten over the head on this issue and being accused of you know being called denier climate deniers troglodytes uh anti-science ignoring science what have you i think there is this transformation that has occurred in the party where they're saying we do embrace this idea that the climate is changing and that man is influencing the climate. Okay, great. So you sort of cross that threshold. And then it's now what do we do? And we continue to get accused of do nothing, being do-nothing actors on this. So we got to have something where we can respond to those charges. So I think it's – at this stage, it's more of a defensive posture. Yeah. I believe, I believe for those Republicans in those suburban districts, they feel like if they're in a debate, town hall situation, that they do have an answer – on climate change, the environment. Great. I give you the answer. You're coming and you're attacking me. I'm saying, wait a minute. I've co-sponsored these these different bills. They're bipartisan. We're trying to advance solutions. Great. Let's move on and talk about healthcare and jobs and the economy and other things. Yeah. That's how I think they're viewing it at this stage. Yeah. But you're right. As it polls do show that more and more people are getting concerned about it. Maybe five years from now, it's a top issue viewed against others, and then Republicans are going to be more of an offensive type position where they're putting forward. Um, bigger, more economy-wide type policies uh, that address, you know, systems and industries and sectors and that kind of thing. So we'll see. Do you think the policies that are coming forward from Congress right now are sincere? I do think that, yeah. And, and, you know, the one of the – it's kind of a tragedy, or maybe it's not yet, but, you know, the Energy and Commerce Committee, both under the Democrats and the Republicans over the last four or five years, has produced a a lot, I mean, a treasure trove of great bipartisan – energy and climate bills. I mean, you can view it as energy or you can view them as climate bills, but they've done things on hydropower. They've done things on nuclear. They've done things on R&D and technology and geothermal and all the things that you'd want to be doing if you're thinking about climate policy kind of holistically and looking at a bunch of different sources that you want to draw upon. So that's great. I mean, the the thing is, can you get those passed in this polarized environment where it's sort of all or nothing? You have to have this big, massive bill. Yeah. Or if you don't have the big, massive bill, you might as well do nothing. We'll see whether you can move some of these smaller steps where I think you can get bipartisan support. But again, if it's this, if we're going to go through this big debate like we did in 2009-10 with this massive 1,400-page bill, I'm not sure that that goes anywhere. I, I think they need to break these things down into discrete bits and just continue to move and have the president sign. Do you think there's a, legislation? an omnibus um, this this energy bill in the Senate right now? Uh, it seems. I should I should preface this discussion by saying I understand some of it. Um, 
uh, it spends a lot of money. It spends a lot of money on nuclear. Mm-hmm. Um, it it authorizes a, a lot of money. It authorizes <laughs> a lot of money on, on, on nuclear, on efficiency. Right. How should people be thinking about that, Bill? I mean, do you think it's going to pass? I think if if you put the bill on the table and you force senators to say yay or nay, I think you could get probably a 95-5 vote on the thing in favor of it. I think – but so there's a couple ways to look at it. One is – really shows the limits of what either party can do when it comes to energy in, in this polarized age, as I said, that we that we live in now. I mean, you can't put anything there in there on oil and gas or th- things that I think Republicans do want to do and just try to um, expedite, streamline, improve the permitting process for oil and gas production on federal lands. I mean, that can't go in there, obviously, because Democrats won't be for it. And Democrats want to do more aggressive things on climate change that would include, you know, mandates and probably taxes or something yeah. along those lines. Republicans will never go for that. So they, there's this very small place in the middle where you can talk about energy efficiency and maybe building codes. We'll see if that goes through. But nuclear and R&D at DOE. And, like lithium is in there. Yeah, the critical stuff, minerals yeah. is interesting thing. So, so yes. And so that – but, again, because we're in this polarized age, you, the bill is being stymied because on both sides there's this pent-up need. I've got my amendment on the renewable fuel standard. I've got my amendment, you know, on climate change. I need to have this considered. And so we're where we were the last time we tried to do this exercise. Yeah. And Senator Murkowski, you know, Godspeed to her. She she's trying to get some things done, but it's just a really difficult task when you've got both sides in the Senate that is tr- trying to get their voices heard on issues that can't pass, can't get through. It seems like the Senate uh something I've heard about negotiating negotiations of this bill is that there has been so little legislation moving through the Senate lately (laughs) that senators and their staffs are somewhat out of practice on it. And so there is this flurry of amendments. There's also revenue boosting amendments that are not being dealt with in the right ways. I mean, is that the dynamic? Like, (laughs) Yeah, the idea that, you know, you would do a a a tax bill in the Senate. I mean, that would obviously be blue slipped, which essentially means, you know, Senator has a, a the ability to put it quote blue slip, which is the old way of, of talking about it. Uh, you have which to get a, it, and basically it, you have to get a budget point of order because yeah. it didn't. It's a tax bill that has to uh, originate in the House, so it's a constitutional issue. But there's in the House you can do a blue slip, in the Senate you can just say like this is unconstitutional. Again, you can raise the budget point of order, and to overcome it, you have to get sixty votes. So I understand why Schumer and Wyden were trying to push it. It was a big priority for the Democrats, but it just never would have gone anywhere and wouldn't have gotten the sixty votes. Um, so, it, but that's a really interesting question that you raised because I've heard that from a lot of people that I talk to, former people that I work, former staffers that I work with on the Hill, and folks in the administration. Yeah, we haven't had a lot of ener- energy legislation over the years. So, outside of the energy committees, you don't have a lot of that expertise that you used to have back yeah. in the early aughts when I was up on the Hill, where you just office after office after office had energy staffers. Uh, and look, energy st- I'm not I don't want to disparage anyone at all, but it's just you do get out of practice. No, but I think it, and it's, you do you lose that, you know, if you're every year you're working on a piece of energy legislation, a big, you know, one that could actually pass and sign into law, you got to work with the other side and you got to compromise and negotiate and go through. The other thing was we aren't legislating just more generally. So this notion of passing something in the House, then passing something in the Senate, and then going to a conference committee and bringing the administration, that old school way of doing things, you don't do that anymore. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess the staffers who haven't been through that process, it's very new to them. I mean, it's been striking to me how much, even just reading relatively recent history uh, that that predates me slightly, like the 2007 
mm-hmm. energy bill. Um, how the specificity of policy that's coming from within Congress, the thought about how different pieces of policy need to interrelate, uh, such that you know the the thought that went into preserving an ability for vehicle regulation under the Clean Air Act versus mm-hmm. preserving NHTSA's ability to do fuel economy. Like, just, I would say looking at documents from that period, more of a comment, I suppose, but there's always, it's 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 really surprising to me how much more uh, expertise there clearly is and how much more policy detail there clearly is at the, right. at the political level. Yeah. Um, well, I wish... I mean, I have complained for a long time that that Congress, one, they're not legislating, but two, that we have statutes that are 30 or 40 or 50 years old. And these are statutes in which Congress, I would argue, delegated a lot of its lawmaking authority to executive branch agencies, particularly EPA. And that poses a lot of problems uh, on a number of different levels. One, it raises questions about democracy and accountability, where you have people who are largely unaccountable in bureaucracies, great people, but they're making big decisions and and then various stakeholders will sue and then you'll go to uh, judges who are unelected and they're making big decisions about the fate of these rules and regulations. And all the while, Congress gets to sit back and complain about the very agencies that it empowered to do the things that it's now saying it doesn't like. So they get to cast the blame and they don't get to blame themselves. So that's a big problem. And so I, I want to see Congress gain more expertise and get more technical and more specific in legislation and actually make those hard calls that are involved in, well, what does clean air mean, for example? EPA, you go figure it out. That's great. Then Congress gets all the credit for saying, well, great, we just passed a bill that says we want clean air. EPA has to make all the hard decisions and trade-offs that go along with figuring that out. I mean, how does that happen? Is that improving Congress's budget? Does that bring... Oh, well, I mean, is it- I mean, that's that's always sort of the response is, well, Congress just can't do that because they don't have the expertise of the staff. Well, but they can do that. They can. So yeah, they can increase their own budgets. And there's no reason why people, you know, there's thousands of employees at EPA. I'm not saying take all of them and bring them back to Congress, but there's no reason those people can't be working on congressional committees. Right. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily a thing to do, but back in the old days, you had the Office of Technology Assessment, yeah. which uh, I think Newt Gingrich got rid of. But. It's one idea where you have this yeah, group of experts. Yeah, I implicated in a in a both in the reduction of con- congressional yeah. budgets and also in getting right. rid of OTA. Yeah. And so, what was the effect of that? So, yeah, um, yeah the OTA is maybe you could bring that back in a different incarnation, but that's another office that uh, could help Congress draft technical legislation in a complex economy. It's do- very doable, but and it's interesting actually. Just the other day, the House Rules Committee. The Democrats and Republicans both agreed they had a hearing on this very topic on, you know, the the Article One authority that Congress has given away and how do they get it back? Yeah. So. And yet, I mean, uh, we did not see the Senate, I would say, aggressively fighting for its rights against the executive during the impeachment proceedings. Like we didn't. It seems like there are real political challenges here. Yes. Uh, and that. What's driving this isn't just a kind of institutional malaise on Congress's part, but also uh, the longer certain statutes stay on the books. I wonder if we're seeing this now with the the other side of this with fuel economy. The longer certain statutes stay on the books, the more, I would say, it benefits those who oppose any kind of regulation at all, right? And that 
it forces Democrats who tend to want to do more with regulation to kind of stretch the bounds of what they can do through mm -hmm. favorable court rulings and precedent. And it allows their adversaries in industry or in you know regulated communities to go yep. and say, well, actually, look, the statute doesn't say that, and we're not going to change the statute. That's a very interesting take. And, you know, for, for years, you, know, you go back, I guess you could trace it to 1984 with, you know, when the Supreme Court propounded the, you know, the Chevron Doctrine, which basically said, you know, as long as an agency has a reasonable interpretation of a provision that Congress passes that's vague or not, it's not clear, unless, unless Congress directly speaks to something, if it's vague or open-ended and an agency comes up with a reasonable, doesn't have to be the best interpretation or a reasonable interpretation, we'll let it stand. Yeah. And the pendulum is starting to swing back sort of against Chevron, and there's a strong encouragement anyway from the Federalist Society and from Republicans in Congress and others who say, well, wait a minute, you've ceded all this space to these regulatory agencies. Congress has given up all its, its regulatory or its legislative authority. So if the, if the courts aren't going to stand up and get in the way, then, you know, wow, this is a big, big problem. And so now you're starting to see the likes of uh, Justice Gorsuch, yes, Kavanaugh. Roberts has been in this game for some years now and Thomas and others. And, yeah, I think Gorsuch actually just wrote a dissent in a case recently where he said, well, you know what, maybe this non-delegation doctrine, which you go back to 1935, uh, you know, New Deal era when that was invoked by the court and that's what provoked Roosevelt to yeah. uh, threaten to pack the court. But they're suggesting, well, maybe we need to bring that back. Maybe we need to be tightening this a little bit more. Maybe we need to be taking a harder look at what these agencies are actually doing and so it'll be interesting to see, to your point, you know, as the agencies, if these statutes aren't updated and agencies have to get more innovative and creative, are judges or the D.C. Circuit or these appellate courts, Supreme Court, going to start saying, well, eh, not so fast, guys? First of all, if Justice Gorsuch isn't involved in any way in repealing Chevron, it will be one of the great historical right. ironies yeah, of right. American jurisprudence. <laughs> there in that, you go, right. Uh, his mom. For obvious reasons, yeah. Yeah, so his, uh, his mom is the reason that his mom, uh, Ann Gorsuch, as EPA administrator, promulgated the rules that then caused Chevron to exist. Yep. Um, uh, but I, I, let's back up for, for a second. Um, you also work with a number you with a number of oil companies, fossil fuel regulated industries. Mm -hmm. How are they perceiving what's happening in ESG right now, and what's happening with this broad shift among investors and uh, financiers to put a larger stre stress on climate change, uh, to put a larger stress on emissions reduction, yep. um, and to at least say they're going to vote, start voting against the management on, right. of some of these companies. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very very big issue, ESG, and you you see it most prominently and most felt, I think, in the kind of the shareholder proxy space where. Over the years, and to a much greater degree now, um, companies, fossil fuel, oil and gas companies, what have you, are facing these shareholder resolutions where folks who have shares come forward and say, well, hey, we want to see more from you guys on how you're going to deal with a carbon-constrained future. We want to see more from you on how you get to net zero by 2050. We want you to embrace the Paris Climate Agreement or the goals of the agreement. Those are some of the examples of what they're seeing. Now, for years, you know, they I think companies fought those and beat those back. But now more and more companies are either accepting them or starting to negotiate. Well, how many, what if we did a study or what if we came out with something that could get close to that but not quite what you want? So companies are both concerned with ESG and those types of things. But they also see it as an opportunity. And I think you do have a lot of companies saying, wait a minute, 
we do have a very good story to tell, and we are reducing emissions, and we are deploying the new technologies to help us get uh, to a lower emissions footprint and the like. So um, the concern, I think, stems from confusion about what are the requirements, what are the standards. Uh, you know, you got all the different bodies that are grading publicly traded companies, whether it's the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or SASB or the Carbon Disclosure Project or other things. are saying, well, who do we, yeah, who do we, we go with here? With, yeah. Or do we just listen to private equity funds who are saying – we're not going to fund you unless you show us what your path forward is. What, so what that's would, the confusion. What would be a move? What would be a move taken by uh, asset managers, asset holders, that would make you go, "Oh wow, this is really serious. This has this has turned a corner, and this yeah, isn't just right. that they're trying to look good to their retail investors anymore." Yeah, that's right. And I think that's what you've seen to date. You know, if you do read the fine print on some of these things, where they're saying, "Well, we're not going to do coal anymore." Well, you read the fine print and it says, "Well, we're not going to do new coal and starting in 2030 in Asian countries or something yeah. like those." So that there's a lot of sort of nuance and conditionality that's imposed upon it. But you know, we'll see. I mean, I think that um, I think it's a, a somewhat striking that you know in Anwar you're starting to see Goldman Sachs and other companies saying, "Well, we're not going to we're not going to provide any funding or any investment for that." Now, I will say again. I don't think you're going to see a lot of bids in Anwar because that's just using a lot of companies moving into the Permian and elsewhere uh, and sort of sh the shale movement. Is, it's not in Anwar. It's elsewhere. So, uh, but yeah, I think if, if the hard line is, you know, you've got a new oil and gas project and unless you guys are putting forward concrete plans for how you're going to show us how you're going to get to lower emissions or to some sort of goal, then you're getting funding from us. And not just from us, but everyone else is kind of in agreement. I just... You do have certain funds that have historically been, I guess, lack of a better term, more progressive, more willing to step out on these issues. I don't think it's as pervasive yet as it may seem, Yeah. Uh, at least the way it's kind of been portrayed. But um, it, it, it's, it's a growing movement. And again, as I said, there's a lot of concern about it because it's just not where is this going? What are the requirements going to be? What is our access to capital going to be? What's that bottom line? And they, I just big question marks. People just don't know what that the answer to that's going to be in, say, five years. How are they thinking about that, especially American companies, whether it's the independents or the, or the majors, thinking about managing that, given that often their competition is uh, state oil companies, is companies that do not have, are operating in, a, in response to a very different set of incentives, but are nonetheless participating in the same global you know, spot market that they are. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, – I mean, oftentimes I don't think those state-owned oil or gas companies have great environmental records. Yeah. And I do think that a lot of companies in the U.S., whether you're an independent or you operate more globally or multinationally, I think they view it as an opportunity that you know there there is this desire for cleaner energy all over the globe. Whether you're looking at the issue of climate change or more strictly looking at just clean air from things like sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and smog and that kind of thing. So – I think companies in the U.S. view this, they do view it to some extent as an opportunity, economic opportunity. If they're yeah. cleaner, they're better, they're more competitive. So that's potentially one way of viewing it. Um, in, uh, so right now, we're reaching near the end. So right now, uh, I think 93% of the transportation sector is oil and gas products, mm -hmm. um, is carbon-powered somehow. Right. Uh, between ESG, between 
various policies that could come out uh, of any administration uh, between what's happening in the economy, between the big EV push from OEMs, uh, by 2030, what percent of what what percent of the transportation sector do you oh think boy. will still be uh, carbon powered? Yeah, it's geez, that's a tough question. I hate to, I'm too much of a wimp, I guess. Any uh, <laughs> kind of sort of hard, well, it's going to be 82 percent. Well, I mean, look, if you go back and and look at what you know the Obama administration did on vehicle fuel economy, there was the grand deal in 2012, and there were certain assumptions built into the deal about you know the penetration of EVs over time, the price of gasoline over time, and it looks like. I don't think those things panned out. I think everyone's in agreement on that. It's just the question then, what do you do to sort of go back and have a relook at what the previous rules or the existing rules are and how do you tweak and change them? Of course, that's the big debate now between some autos, yeah. the Trump administration, California. Um, but I, again, I think if oil prices continue to stay where they are, if, we, if we're in this price band of 50 to 60 to $65 and Consumers can continue to go to the pump and pay between two to three dollars for a gallon of gasoline. I don't think you're going to see this shift to EVs anytime soon in any kind of significant way, um, unless there's other things that the industry and they're doing this, I guess, to some extent, where you're getting more range. Um, the the vehicles themselves, I think, are more attractive. It'll, you know, get an EV Hummer. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there's different types of models and SUVs, as you suggest. Joe and, Biden. Of yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So that could then attract um, more folks. You know, if the EV tax credit goes away, certainly that's going to be a, a negative, I think, obviously, for, for EVs. But I just don't see the penetration. So you are going to continue to see that's car companies are in a very tough spot. I don't envy them in the least because they're getting a lot of pressure on the shareholder side. They've yeah. got the uncertainty on the regulatory side. And yet consumers are speaking pretty clearly about what they want to buy, which is gas-powered vehicles. They want to go. They're trying to demonstrate they're going more in the EV direction. But... It's just not what consumers are, are, are going out and buying. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it was funny. I asked Emily Wimberger, the other Epic Policy Fellow this year, the same question. I said, by 2050, <laughs> uh, what percent of transportation will be decarbonized? And her answer was, by current models, on current policy pathways, uh, 45% of new vehicle sales will be... Uh. I said about, I was thinking about 50 percent. So that's, yeah. That so, yeah, I mean, that's a good bit longer than I think you would see in any policy platform. Yeah, right. That's a good bit longer than the UK's most mm -hmm. recent plan is going. So well, what will happen too? I mean, that she makes an interesting point about you, know, you have to sort of look at what are the existing policies and extrapolate from that. But, you know, Washington state and I'm sure other states will follow are saying, well, we're going to pass. Maybe it's just a resolution at this point. We're going to pass bans on uh, internal combustion engines. Yeah. How real are those things going to get over time? Because the states are really leading, I suppose, or taking their own path, their own route when it comes to, um, to, to climate change because there's so much um, polarization and stagnation at the federal level. So they're just moving forward. So maybe states just decide themselves, well, we've had enough and we're just going to ban these things yeah. and just set a date by which, you know, 2030, no more. Yeah. No more sales in our state. Can states do that? Um, that is an interesting question because it's not under the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, which is basically the CAFE law. States can't set fuel economy. And, of course, that's a big fight with California right yeah. now. Where California is actually operating under the Clean Air Act, and they're claiming they're doing it for clean air reasons. And we'll see what the court yeah. ultimately says about that. But no, but this, is, this isn't this is saying we're going to regulate CAFE. We're just saying, they're saying There's they're going to no, ban the vehicles, yeah. which is a different, I think, legal question. So... 
one could argue, I suppose, that they would be able to do that. Yeah. Um, so that would set up a whole different dynamic. But we'll see where all that goes. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. 